This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Jim Copeland. Jim is a senior fellow at Manhattan Institute and the director for the Manhattan Institute Center for Legal Policy. His forthcoming book, The Unelected, How an Unaccountable Elite is Governing America, will be out next week and is available for booksellers everywhere today. He has testified before Congress as well as state and municipal legislatures and has been published in the Harvard Business Law Review, the Yale Journal on Regulation, the Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. He is a graduate of the University of North Carolina and too many graduate schools to enumerate here, including Yale Law School. Will Jim, among other things, introduce me to cigars. Jim, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Always happy to be with The Rabbi's Husband. So let's go to your chosen passage. I know how well you know the Bible. We've been talking about it for years. So you've chosen, of all passages, Numbers 12. So describe to us what's happening in Numbers 12 and uh, why it's significant to you. So Numbers 12 is really, you know, this is this is really right at the beginning of the sort of narrative part of the book of Numbers as the Hebrews are heading off really into the wilderness, and this is the wilderness sojourn. So we've had a little of that, of course, at the end of Exodus, you know, the story everyone's everyone knows, you know, what we've seen Charlton Heston portray on, on camera, whether they're religious or not, and people know about the manna from heaven. They know about the golden calf at the time that God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, etc. And then after that, those of us who, like me, got their, their Bibles at some point as a young person and started reading them, you read through Exodus, Genesis and Exodus, and it's just gripping, engaging. And, and then you get to the, to the book of, of Leviticus, and it sort of goes through all the formalistic rules and, and codes, which you know is, is quite different stylistically. And then we get back to Numbers, and the first part of Numbers is going through the, the Levites and, and, and some of these various rules. It goes through the census, first of all. And then after the first 10 chapters of Numbers, you sort of get back to the narrative story. And the first of those basically has the Hebrews complaining that this manna from heaven, oh, we're sick of the manna, all we get is the manna. And so God sends in a bunch of quail um, and then admonishes them. And then we turn to the next basic story here in the narrative of the wilderness. And that's what we get at, at Numbers uh, 12. And it, it, it's really sort of a challenge to some degree to Moses's authority. So this is where Miriam and Aaron, the older siblings of Moses, come in here and uh, really attack Moses or speak against him. And what it says literally in my biblical translation, and I'm using the Jewish study Bible version, says Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married. He married a Cushite woman. And the Cushites are from where? Cushite is generally thought to be from Ethiopia. So the principle here, as I've always understood it, and there are some different rabbinic uh, interpretations here that we can talk about if we want, but I've always understood it as, you know, he married an outsider. He married this brown woman. It's not clear in the text whether this is talking about Zipporah. Now, Zipporah would have been a Midianite. That's right. I think it's pretty clear it's not Zipporah, although some rabbis suggest it might be, but we know she was a Midianite woman. She was the daughter of Jethro, the Midianite priest, which is a different people than the Cushites. Right. So we would assume if, if it's not just sort of 
using a different word that, that Moses had at some point taken another wife, but it could it could be still Zipporah. But we also, we, we, we haven't seen Zipporah in the Bible in a long time, which leads one to presume they must have gotten divorced because we see her in early Exodus. She disappears, never comes back. And then this Cushai woman appears in Numbers 12, leading one to conclude that Moses, for whatever reason, at whatever time, divorces Zipporah and marries this Cushai woman. Possibly, or or possibly uh, that you know we were living in a time when polygamy was was much more common in, 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 at this time, and so it's possible that there was a second wife. Uh, some rabbis, as I understand it, have interpreted this not as a rebuke for her being a Kushite, which is what it looks to me literally in the text, and rather a rebuke that he's not giving her enough attention, or he's uh, you know not not laying with his wife or things. I've, I've seen these sorts of interpretations. But yeah, but you, you wouldn't get that from the text. But what you would get from the text is that Gematria is, is re- rests on the premise that every Hebrew letter corresponds with a number. And when two numbers are the same, they have a deep affiliation. The Gematria for Cushite and the Gematria for Beautiful of Appearance is the same, 736. That's fascinating. Something I, I, I learned on this today. So that's, that's great. So, yeah, so the biblical author, whether it's God or some, someone else, the biblical author is clearly associating Cushite with beautiful appearance. So the Cushites of beautiful appearance is why I interpret it as, because we, we've not heard from Zipporah in a while, we've not heard anything about her in a while, I think Moses probably got divorced from her, which would be explained by her absence. Then he marries a beautiful woman. We know she's beautiful because Cushite and beautiful appearance have the same gematria. So he marries a beautiful woman and Miriam and Aaron are saying, effectively, why did Moses leave his perfectly nice wife, Zipporah, who gave him these two lovely children for this young, beautiful woman? <laughs> well, that could be the critique. But I also think that there's perhaps an implicit critique on the fact that she is an outsider, a Cushite here. I view that through sort of the later on in the chapter, later on in the passage, sort of the imagery that it evokes. So, you know, they say this. And they say, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And and the Lord rebukes them, you know, basically making clear. I mean, the Lord revealed himself to Moses in a different way. And of course, Aaron is the high priest and Miriam. And these are significant, these are significant people. They're his siblings, but it was the Lord's choice to, to give authority to Moses and reveal himself in a different way. And then what the Lord does, what God does in this passage after this is to punish. Miriam, and some feminists don't like the fact that it's Miriam that gets the punishment and not Aaron. There may be reasons for that that are, that are not wholly clear in the, in the passage or in the text itself. But as, as, as the cloud, as God leaves, as cloud, the cloud withdrew from the tent, Miriam, it says, was stricken with snow-white scales. So this is some sort of skin disease that's turned her snow-white. And so a lot of Christian pastors have used this regularly in sermons in arguing against prohibitions on things like interracial marriage. So just as God admonishes the Jewish people to uh, not to outmarry religiously, so would say Christians today say you want a partner who is equally yoked, who, who, who shares a common faith. But I think it's pretty clear in the Bible that that's not a racial category definition. Oh, it's, it's very clear. And I, and I think and I, I think the clarity is, among other times, among other ways, evinced by the fact that the Cushite woman is a, is beautiful of appearance. Now, one of the reasons why Miriam and Aaron get in trouble with God is they speak out against Moses. That's not the problem. They speak out against Moses behind his back. So 
This is the canonical story of Lashon Hara, of tailbearing. They're talking about Moses behind his back. In other words, they're gossiping about Moses, which is a great Jewish sin, gossiping. Never once in this passage do they say, Moses, we have a problem. You married this Cushite woman. What about Zipporah? I think certainly there's, there's some polygamy in the, in the Bible. Whenever it happens, it's always a catastrophe. Polygamy never ends well. Certainly, the biblical author does not look well on polygamy. He accepts it, that it, it was a fact of ancient society, but then he subverts its legitimacy by having it always end in catastrophe. So we don't see any polygamy with Miriam, Aaron, or Moses. I think what we see is divorce. And Miriam and Aaron are speaking against Moses behind his back. They're gossiping. They never once say, Moses, we have a problem. Why did you leave Zipporah for this young, beautiful woman? What about your children? What about your wife? What about your beloved father-in-law, Jethro? And it's it's in their failure to address Moses directly. It's in their failure to rebuke him in a way that he can learn from that they failed and that they're punished. I think that makes sense. And the language certainly suggests it. I mean, they said they, they spoke against Moses. They said this. The Lord heard it. And then it, it says, well, now Moses was a very humble man, more so than any other man on earth. And then the Lord calls them together to the tent of meeting where he says, you know, he's made himself known to Moses differently, not through dreams. He's trusted throughout his house, speaks mouth, and, and this is what he says expressly, which I think dovetails with, with your interpretation there. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, plainly and not in riddles, and he beholds the likeness of the Lord. How then did you not shrink from speaking against my servant Moses? And it says, and, and since with them, the Lord departed. So the very fact that there's an emphasis here on speaking plainly, mouth to mouth, not in riddles, I think does buttress that sort of interpretation that we're not just talking about a challenge to Moses, but it's a back, it's a backdoor challenge. It's, it's, it's an insidious challenge. Which is not a challenge at all because the, 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 the Bible is insistent on rebuking and all of Jewish tradition emphasizes the importance of rebuking. There was a great rabbi of the 17th century who was known as the master of rebuke. I mean, who would be known with such praise as a master of rebuke? Well, a rabbi would because it's so important in the Jewish tradition, but they don't rebuke him because they gossip about him. And the difference between rebuking and gossiping is whether you are giving that constructive criticism to the person in a way that first he hears, and second, in a way that he can use it to change and improve himself. And that's a sacred act, but they don't do it. They gossip behind his back. God hears it because God hears everything. And uh, they're punished for this act. And um, that's why this is the kind of canonical biblical expression of a shown hurrah of gossiping, because they're specifically speaking about Moses but not to him. Even if the substance of what they're saying is right, even if he divorced Zipporah for no good reason and married a young, beautiful woman, and he should not have done that, their method, their means is totally illegitimate because they're gossiping behind his back and they're not giving him the chance to explain himself. They're not giving him the chance to learn from their critique because what other way is there to improve than to seek, accept, and welcome the loving rebuke of someone who cares about us and to improve accordingly. And Moses and Aaron were, I mean, Aaron and Miriam were Moses's beloved siblings. So they were in that position. The only people in that position to genuinely help Moses improve, but they didn't let him because they were gossiping behind his back. And as constructive as rebuking is, is as destructive as gossiping is. And I think that's what this passage is teaching us. And, and, and if there's ambiguity about that, uh, it's, it's sort of settled later on, again, because Moses, as, as he's done, as a lot of the fathers did, as, as throughout the Bible, you see the great leaders, the great prophets do. I mean, Jacob quite literally wrestling with God. Here you see Moses challenging God 
and it says in, in the 13th verse, so Moses cried out. I mean, after Aaron basically went to Moses and said, not account to us the sin which we committed in our folly, Moses cries out to God and says, and says, oh God, pray, heal her. In other words, he's asking God to intercede. He's questioning God's judgment. And then God comes back to Moses and says, if her father spat in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut out of camp for seven days and then let her be readmitted. Miriam's punishment is a serious punishment, but it's not a permanent punishment. It's a seven-day punishment, but it's a serious rebuke that Miriam bears. And the question as to what, it's not expressed in the text that it's it's just Miriam doing this and not Aaron. And so uh, certainly there are feminist scriptures of the Bible that get agitated about the fact that Miriam bears the punishment, even though Aaron was doing the same stuff. And, you know, some of that may be that as the high priest, you know, Aaron was 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 not able to be removed for seven, seven days. Perhaps there's something that's just not relayed in the text uh, that made Miriam bear this shame. Aim and not, not Aaron. Uh, we don't really know that. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's a, ver- a very good question and a good critique. And I, I think you might have it. It's, it's the presumption might be that not everything that's said, certainly not everything that's said is recorded in the text. That being said, on, on its face, there is the troubling question of why is Miriam punished and Aaron is uh, is not punished. Now, getting back to what you're saying before, where it says that um, uh, Moses was the most, says right here in the passage, Moses was the most humble man of all time. I believe his humility is at least partially explained by 1213, which is a passage you read where it said, Moses cried out to Hashem saying, please God heal her now. Because the Jewish definition of humility, it's not denying that one like Moses received extraordinary gifts from God. The Jewish definition of humility is accepting that fact that God gives everybody gifts, but always supplementing one's gifts and supplementing oneself to a higher principle. And here Moses is insulted in a deeply profound way. He's gossiped about, which is terrible. He's the victim of Lashon Hara. And um, his family decisions are questioned in, as we said, in a gossip way. So he has every reason, if he were just a regular guy, to be really offended, perhaps to hold a grudge, but he doesn't do it. Instead, he offers this prayer and he says, God, healer. Now, as you said, he in effect rebukes God. He said, God, what are you doing? She insults him in a really bad way behind his back through gossip. And how does Moses respond? In defense of his sister, against God, which makes it the quintessential Jewish or Mosaic act. Absolutely. And, and in parallel, you know, very parallel to Christian theology as well, which is sort of the, the extended diaspora of, of, of Judaism. And, 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 you know, the intercession on behalf of a sinner is the paradigmatic act of, of seeking mercy when justice would require something else. And and so that is what Moses is doing here. And it's a clear model that Moses is the one offended here, but but still has a punishment. Uh, and, and I think that's important. I mean, we're, we're living in a time today where we're trying to wrestle with things without our criminal justice system. I mean, the punishment is here. The punishment is real. The punishment is, while significant, it's, it, it's not exorbitant, although it's easy for me to say, you know, seven days is a significant punishment. And, and clearly this sort of, visceral appearance, creating a, a sort of shamed appearance with, with Snow White is a real punishment, but God still has a punishment. And, and so God's not backing off the punishment, but he does hear Moses and Moses intercedes or attempts to intercede on behalf of his sister, uh, notwithstanding that he would be a brief party. Well, perhaps God continues with the punishment because there's no distinction in the Bible between a sin against God and a sin against another person. A sin against person is a sin against God. All throughout the text, we see it. We see seemingly interpersonal 
laws, challenges, and then God will assert himself and say, I am Hashem. So God considers a sin against man to be a sin against him. But I think what God's saying to Moses is, yes, she insulted you, but there's no notion of only insulting a person. When one person insults another, they also insult me, God, and she's getting the punishment. In other words, saying to Moses, like, it's not about you. And well, Jim, as a legal scholar, how do you respond to that? You know, if, if a victim of a crime says to the authorities, forgive the assailant, what would the authorities say? The general answer would be not necessarily. I mean, I mean, clearly when it comes to questions of proof, not having a, a witness or a friendly witness could, could be a problem. For certain types of crimes, a good prosecutor would listen to the victim of the crime. But this is generally the distinction in Anglo-American law, which has its roots in Judaic law and Roman law, between what we call a crime and what we call a tort. So in tort law and civil law, as you know, it is a private tortfeasor who files suit to gain some form of monetary compensation or redress based on a harm done by uh, somebody else. And so in tort law, you clearly can say, I forgive you. You could not bring the suit. Yeah, you don't have to bring the suit. You can drop the suit. You don't have to press your rights. Criminal law is different. This is the state enforcing the law against someone who has, in our secular sense, crossed societal boundaries. And it's an important principle that the state uh, has the control over the criminal law and not the victim because the perpetrator can act again. So if the perpetrator is not incapacitated in some form or fashion, the perpetrator can act again. And the state has an interest in deterring other potential perpetrators from committing the same crime. So the state has an interest in protecting some sort of public order. This clearly shows that in the context of the law that's been imparted to Moses and to the Jews at this early point in their history, God views this as a more than just an individual right of redress. And that's, that's clear from the, from the Decalogue itself. And I think that would find a parallel in criminal law because a victim cannot, now you're right, a victim can say, I'm just not participating and helping with the evidence. That's just a tactical problem. But if all the evidence was in and the victim says, out of my uh, religious uh, commitment to mercy, I don't want him punished. The state comes in and says, it was not only a crime against you, it was a crime against everybody. And you don't have the authority to give him state-sponsored forgiveness. You can feel in your heart whatever you want. But this was a crime against everybody. There's no notion in the state and in the Bible of a crime only against one person. A crime against one person is a crime against everybody. Absolutely. And, and it's clear in the Decalogue itself. Right? I mean, God puts out the, the Ten Commandments. All the other rules sort of flow out of those in some form or fashion. And you know, the first few rules are about God himself, not taking his, not taking other gods before him. There's one God, not, not uh, taking his name in vain. The rest of the rules are about fellow man, you know, not stealing, not killing, not envying, not committing adultery. They're all about offenses against the fellow man, and they clearly matter to God, because that's why God put them in the religious That's Right. So, Jim, thank you as always, for such an interesting uh, discussion, in this case of such a seminal text, Numbers 12. So moving from one text to the other, and this, this is always our concluding question, from the sacred text of the Bible to a very secular text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says in the book, um, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war, 
And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Jim, in all of your years as a scholar of the law who has read, researched, and written about so many varied subjects in the criminal and the civil law, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? You know, I, mean, I think man is, it sounds trite, but I think it's sort of central, is that, that man is fundamentally good, but man is also fundamentally fallen. And, and so I think our law embodies that. Hume said if, if we were all angels, you know, we wouldn't have any need for law. That's true. But we're all fallen. We all have original sin. It's central. It's right up at the front of, of Genesis. And so we all are predisposed to do awful things. And we saw that at the very beginning with Cain and Abel. Because of that, because of, of our insubordination and our, our unwillingness to, to live as angels, you know, God has given us the law. And the law exists to protect us against our better instincts. But, but I also think in, in our modern context that man is inherently good. So in the early, the early days, uh, you know, God picked out leaders. He picked out Moses. He picked out the judges. He picked out the kings. He picked out the prophets. And in our day, we have democratic processes, and we clearly sometimes get it wrong and pick out people who, who are, are, are not well-suited, but that was true. You know, it's not like King Solomon. It's not like Moses. It's not like Joshua. I mean, all these people made mistakes, sometimes grievous mistakes. But we do have some capacity to move forward. And, and that's why I think God entrusts us with the law and entrusts us with the ability to govern ourselves in some way. And, and there have been various formats in the Bible and, and today in which we do that. But there's, there's hope for us. There's good in us. And that's why God loves us. That's why God takes an interest in us. That's why God has given us this book, these lessons, this history um, and in the context of the Jewish people, a, a sacred original covenant and a special place in God's heart. Another question in that vein that relates from our previous discussion, you talked about how one interpretation of the Numbers 12 story is of a marriage of two different cultures. So you've lived that. You're a white North Carolinian, and uh, Tahir is from where? He's from New York, although... He's from New York, right, of course. Yeah, you know, she grew up in the Bronx, but her, her father grew up in my home county in North Carolina, and her mother's mother... Uh, was from Aiken, South Carolina. So she has North and South Carolina roots herself. Right. So um, what have you learned in, in this um, lived experience of uh, being a white North Carolinian married to a black New Yorker? Well, I mean, I think in general, I've been heartened by just the amazing positive progress that society's made. It doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that there aren't people who may look at us a certain way. And I would emphasize it's, it's also, it's, it's, contextually dependent. I mean, if, if you have more education and money and wealth, you know, you're not necessarily in the same position as, as others. A white man with a black woman is not necessarily going to get the same treatments as a black man with a white woman would in, in, in comparable situations. Um, so I think all these things matter. Here where we live, which is sort of... In a North, Burn, North Carolina. Newburn, North Carolina, which is the colonial capital of the state. It was the largest city in the state through about a decade or two before the Civil War, and had a large free Black community very early on. Uh, and then um, the last Black congressman uh, elected in the 19th century before uh, the grandfather clauses, the white supremacy campaigns, et cetera, came in. So a long history of sort of 
whites and blacks living together, certainly not in, in perfect harmony, and certainly slavery existed. But but uh, then then some sort of significant black backsliding, and and what we've seen here, I think, is is a lot of forward progress. That's it's, it's heartening to us, and and it's something we both work on a lot at the community level. It obviously varies a lot from time to, to place, from place to place, and from time to time, depending on where you are and what the context is here. But this is if if the original sin of mankind was related through the story of the apple and the knowledge of good and evil uh, in, in, in the beginnings of Genesis, you know, the original sin of America was fundamentally this race problem and particularly the, the system of race-based chattel slavery. And it's something we're continuing to wrestle with and it's continuing to rip us apart today. And, and I hope that peaceful minds will, will prevail and that we can move forward uh, in a constructive, positive way. And, and that's something I'm just going to try to do the best I can uh, in my little part of the world and through my own writings to try to promote. So you talk about the progress that that we've experienced as a society. How do you see that progress from, let's say, take the Jim Copeland who graduates high school in 1990 to Jim Copeland now 30 years later? How have you seen that progress develop in North Carolina or otherwise uh, through your observations and, of course, with regards to your experiences? Well, I mean, I think when people spend time with other people who look different but are fundamentally quite similar, it, it erodes uh, prejudices that people otherwise have. And I think, you know, that's the sort of what we've seen here, the delayed system. I mean, I was I was among the earliest cohorts to go to racially integrated schools here in North Carolina until really fairly late in the 1960s, notwithstanding Brown v. Board, you just didn't have public schools that were racially integrated, and you certainly had private schools. They were created in part in reaction to Brown v. Board uh, that, that, that uh, were white-only type private schools. And, and so I was really in the first cohort uh, that grew up that way. And when I was a child coming here to eastern North Carolina, eastern North Carolina is where the big farms were. North Carolina was never a giant plantation state like the deep southern states uh, or like South Carolina for not, not, not far away. But the extent we had larger plantation and larger farms, that was in the eastern part of the state. The black population outside the cities is concentrated in this part of the state. Um, and, and historically, some of the you know, racial animosity and tensions have, have existed. This has been sort of the locus of it. Charles Aycock, the governor who ran the white supremacy campaign in 1898, was from Goldsboro. Turnerfold Simmons, who orchestrated it for the Democratic Party for him and then was a five-term senator, was from Kira Newbern, lived right down the street. And the Wilmington race riots, where they the brown shirts came out and closed down the newspaper and intimidated people from, from the polls in 1898, was in Wilmington. These were all eastern North Carolina places. And when I was a child, both in my hometown and here, you wouldn't see interracial couples. Um, if you saw one, it was exceptional and eye-turning. We almost never dine out anywhere other than the country club, of which we were members. Uh, that wouldn't have been true in my youth. But we never dine out uh, anywhere where we're, we're the only interracial couple. It's, it's really a remarkable change. Uh, you know, I coach sports teams that are, are biracial with black, mixed-race, black, white, and, and, and white uh, players all the time. And this didn't exist at all in the 80s when you were growing up? Totally different than what, what we saw in the 80s. Um, when I was growing up in high school in the 80s, uh, there was no interracial dating, with the exception of, of you know, star basketball players would sometimes have white girlfriends, male basketball players, which is you know, sort of the, at the, the forefront of that. But otherwise, it was sort of kept, quote unquote, on the down low. It was quiet. That was even true at the University of North Carolina when I was there in the early 1990s. 
Uh, I talked to friends of mine who were black. Like, ah, it's on the down low. Not universally. I was in a college fraternity that was racially integrated. I had black fraternity brothers that brought white dates. I had white fraternity brothers that bought black dates. But that was really the exception, not the rule. Um, it's not what you see now. People are live together and are used to dealing with each other. And that's remarkable progress. Now, we still do have substantial inequalities that are highly correlated with race that, that are a function of uh, the deep history. There clearly is still bigotry. I don't mean to soft pedal that at all. But I do think that, that there's been substantial progress. And I think it's important not to ignore that uh, as we continue to try to, to, to move better and to move toward this sort of, uh, of world that our Bible pushes us toward, which is one where we love all of God's children, even if we disagree. Right. Well, Jim, uh, thank you uh, for, as always, such interesting and thoughtful uh, reflections and ideas and for being such a great friend now for uh, 25 years for your parents on the rabbi's husband and uh, send our love to Tahira, Ben, and Elizabeth. Send our love to the rabbi, Erica, and, and poor kids you have. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>